Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Didn't feel to me in the other books about Francis that that was... Didn't happen to me in the other books about Francis. He's... In his larger-than-lifeness, he is somewhat otherized in the writing about him, accused of megalomania, madness, you know, indulgence, um, all of these things that I I hope readers come to see in my book are grounded in a dream. And it's a dream that I think on some level we all have, uh, except unlike us, Francis is the only mean, one with the means to approach it. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdell. I am a writer and film critic and today I'm delighted to start 2024 with a new book by Sam Wasson. We're going to be talking about A Path to Paradise, a Francis Ford Coppola story, or Coppola I should say actually. I mispronounce his name all the way through this podcast so apologies for that. Sam is, this is the third time he's been on uh, Writers on Film. He was here with his book The Big Goodbye, his book about Chinatown. He was also here last year with Hollywood and Oral History, a book he co-wrote with Janine Basinger, also a friend of the podcast and a former guest. If you enjoy the episode, please remember to like. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. You can also listen to sister podcast, Cinema Italia, if you so wish. That's available where all good podcasts are. And the fictional uh, speculative novel podcast series, Connery, is also ongoing and available, again, wherever Uh, podcasts are listened to get it from any of your favorite platforms i firmly encourage you it's a a really good different thing that we're trying uh, narrated by kai ross but before you do any of that enjoy this fantastic conversation I put on my Goodreads review that this reads like a novel that Francis Ford Coppola would option. Oh, great. Oh, that's so good to hear. That's great. That's wonderful. Thank you, John. That's so thanks for posting a review. That's so good. It's a it's a, a super book. And I thought I and this was a book that I sort of thought, I know about this period. I know about Coppola. Right. I've seen the the Eleanor Coppola documentary i've read the the notes of um for the making of apocalypse now and i've read you know the peter biskind book about the period so i know all about it and then uh, you read this book and you uh, i read this book and i thought i there's so much more it's so deeper there's so so many things you go into what was your sort of beginning point for this book what was the, the the bit that you said no, this this story hasn't been told properly, or not 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 properly, but hasn't been totally told. Well, it was just that. It's that 
it's that feeling that there's a hole in the library. Mm. And uh, while Coppola has been written about for so many years, I mean, Coppola was famous, you know, as early as the late 60s, because he was the first of that generation to break out of film school. So Coppola had been widely interviewed and and obviously the success of Godfather Apocalypse. He's been a visible public figure for half a century. And yet all of the biographical material on him was really centered around him as the director of The Godfather. And I thought that was wrong. The Godfather is a wonderful accident in a career with a totally different trajectory. Um, a career that is A, about zoetrope, being a facilitator of films, an entrepreneur of films, and even a visionary of how we can live our lives. That's A. And B, his filmmaking career is, a, is I thought, a, a, a lust for, premised on a lust for spiritual discovery and community. Um, so while Apocalypse has been widely written about, uh, the sources you mentioned, it hadn't been written about, I don't think, to the fullest of, of its power um, because it lacked these central attributes. So I, I, I thought I had a new perspective on Francis. And I, and I think, you know, like everyone writing, I think I had the right perspective on Francis. <laughs> exactly. Yes, and you and you used uh, talking about the apocalypse now as a sort of as a springboard, a jumping-off point. You use it in a way which feels very filmic because it's like the book is a series of flashbacks and then flash forwards, and you play with time in a way that reminded me actually of Godfather Part Two. That, mm. uh, that we're, right. we're going right. back to see De Niro, uh, right. you know, what he's doing, his rise to power. Right. Yeah. Well, I wanted it to be a journey up the river into Francis, the way mm. the movie is a journey up the river into Willard. And also, I wanted it, you to feel the tension and the stakes that Francis was feeling. Um, a lot of times in nonfiction, I find that it isn't as emotional as life. And um, I don't think that does that. I don't think that's honest to history. So a lot of that has to do with uh, structure and style. Um, how to bring that emotion um, to to the reader, and that was one of the ways that I th I thought of to do to do it. I think one of the things, the one of the the, the signs that it does that is it reminds me of like uh, whenever you're a great work of art, whenever you're watching Hamlet, for instance, you want him to win the duel at the end and and survive. You 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 always have this glimmer of hope that surely he'll he'll get out of this surely they were joking when it, they said tragedy at the uh, yeah poster and i think uh when you read history it feels like oh it's very clear that we're going towards something that we already know has happened and you lose that sense that this is an event in the context, this the people who lived it as lived experience didn't know that this existed in a context which extended into the future. They so, didn't know the ending. Exactly. He didn't know yeah. what Apocalypse Now was going to do. He didn't know right. Godfather Part Two or Godfather was right. even come along. And you really right. capture that that sort of lack of that oh, immediacy, good. you know. Good, good. Yeah, no, I wanted you to also, as I do with all my subjects, I want the reader to walk around in their shoes and identify with them. And it doesn't didn't feel to me in the other books about Francis that that was 
didn't happen to me in the other books about Francis. He's in his larger than lifeness. He is somewhat otherized in the writing about him, accused of megalomania, madness, you know, indulgence, um, all of these things that I I hope readers come to see in my book are grounded in a dream. And it's a dream that I think on some level we all have, uh, except unlike us, Francis is the only mean, one with the means to approach it. So I wanted to reverse that myth of Francis as a, um, oh God, as, as a, um, a, uh, a, um, a, 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 what should I say? A, um, I guess I said it as as a um, megalomaniac um, or someone who was um, out of control. Um, the part of Francis that 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 is out of control, uh, I I I think is very much conscious of being out of control. Um, so that was a, one of the paradox that this is also about, and I hope to spin towards the positive. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah, and and the the community that you talked about just then that that was one of the parts of his um, his process of creating a spiritual journey in a community. Mm -hmm. One thing mm -hmm. that surprised me is when you go back to the beginning of his life and his his family, which you do in in some detail, um, partly because I think from hearing. Francis himself speak in sort of documentaries and commentaries, you have this idea of him coming from this almost idyllic sort of Italian family background. Mm. And in mm. reality, it's it's like, wow, that family has some problems. And, you know, it's it, it totally rejigged my idea of where of what the family meant for him. Yeah, it took it took um He's not so psychologically minded, Francis. So he doesn't view his family situation as, um, I, I, I guess, as, um, let me see, to try to find, as, as, as neurotic as I do. Um, right. And, and other writers haven't positioned it that way. Um, but I do believe there was neglect in the family. Um, and also I found it in journals and personal writings in his archives. Um, you know, you see sort of patterns of neglect if you can identify them as neglect. You know, part part of what happens when you're children is that you justify the house that you live in growing up and it becomes almost like a Stockholm syndrome to all of us. And you, you you really need the point of view of a third person to come in and say, oh, you know, that doesn't sound so loving. Um, and there's oftentimes resistance to that. Uh, but I, I'm confident that that's the environment that Francis grew up in. And I thought it was very important in terms of how formative it was for his life and work to make that clear. Well, it makes the depictions of family and also his his attempts to create a filmmaking family exactly exactly it, 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 it shows it in a different light surely because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it's no longer re yeah. recreating it it's it's actually right. compensating for it or, that's exact that's exactly right and again it's 
it's not the godfather. This is the mistake that a lot of people make, a lot of people writing about Francis. No, it's it's not the godfather. Um, he, he grew up under the influence of a powerful man, his father, um, but he was a narcissistic force in the house. Um, and godfather doesn't doesn't deal with that. Yeah, I mean the strap and the yes, uh, yes. You, you know, and even even later in life, even when his father has been helped enormously by Francis's the work that Francis gives him as a composer, um, he he's not particularly content with it. He's he... no, it doesn't ex exactly. I was I was surprised by that. None of that had been printed before. I had not seen that in 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 anything um but you know these things this is why there's so many biographies because every biographer has a different view I, I my biography is informed by the questions i ask i ask a lot of questions about those early years another biographer might not right. um, um but that's part of my that's part of my orientation i i i i believe that the person is made like I said, I'm psychologically oriented. I believe that the person is made in those in those early years. Yeah, the the imprinting happens, and of mm -hmm. course he has he has like Scorsese has moments of uh, childhood ill health. That, That's that, correct. That sort of makes living through vicarious means very important. Correct. correct. Um, yep. And he, did, and he thought he wasn't going to walk at one point in his life. Yes, exactly. Exactly. No, there was a lot, a lot against Francis. And it's often true of the most powerful artists that um, their power as artists is inversely proportionate to what they uh, faced, the obstacles they faced as children. Mm, mm. And that can often perhaps, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, speculating, but also maybe s somehow justify or rationalize the excesses that come later on because they're, they're sort of making up for lost time. Yeah, no, there's a deficit. There mm. is a deficit, an emotional deficit. And like all of us, it can be filled the wrong way. Um, uh but most of us don't have the power, the money, the fame, all of the addictive, um, all of the addictive temptations that people in the movie business have, N nor are we covered in the press. So um, th they're much more visible and <clears throat> have have higher to fall and farther, farther to go. Um, but it doesn't make them any less human. So Coppola starts his career coming from uh, a sort of film school background, but very early going into actually making films and uh, working with Roger Corman. I mean, initially he's making some uh, sort of semi-porn films. Would that be? Yeah, or, softcore, or just, softcore. Softcore porn. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I remember hearing somebody tell me i'm not sure who it was it might have been paul hirsch saying that that like a lot of those 70s directors basically started yes. in porn because well, how are you going that to was get, the equipment how, how are you going to get in you're going to get in in the low budget world what are the low budget worlds you know it's roger corman and porn yeah yeah who's who have got the, the cameras now what who have got the cameras and the lighting that's who has the cameras and the lighting exactly where are the industries um 
So, so yeah. Uh, and again, it was, it was soft core and it was not hardcore porn, you know? Um, um, uh, so yeah, he did tonight for sure is the name of one of the movies that he made. Um, and you know, you, you, it's, it, it's true of all of us. A door opens and you walk through it. Mm. Absolutely. Yes. And then Roger Coleman, uh, you know, who, who, I, I don't, I mean, he, he's definitely estimated. I wouldn't say he's underestimated or overestimated in terms of his influence, but he's very yeah. well known as, as being this uh, wonderful conduit and magnifier of talent. Well, um, who else was saying, who else was giving film, young filmmakers a job and saying, go ahead, you know, anything under $20,000 or however much it was, $200,000, um, have at it. Um, it's a dream. It's a dream way to work. I don't know who else was doing that to the degree that Corman was. Sir, I don't think anyone. I wonder why it's not replicated so much today. Is it there's just not the audience for that sort of film? There's not the distribution product? Because, I mean... <sighs> That's other, other, that, other than right. Blumhouse, you know, other than Blumhouse, I don't see anybody doing that sort of keep it low and then have freedom. Well, uh, uh, part of the problem is accessibility of filmed entertainment. Mm. You know, we can get low, low budget product is so ubiquitous. We can get we can get that anywhere. We can get that online. We can get that on TV. In in Roger in Roger's days, it was somewhat ubiquitous, but not nearly to the degree that it is it is now. And when he made Dementia Thirteen, which was his first film uh, with Roger Corman, I think as a, as a director, right. in a way that sort of creates a template for how he's going to work from then on in terms of he doesn't really have a film he doesn't really have a a script that's complete right and ready to go right on john i'm glad you got that that's that's francis is always in process always in process and that that make can make him hard to work with it can make him wonderful to work with because he's always open to your idea and that's part of the community environment of a coppola movie is that the process does not end. I mean, here we are today and Coppola is still cutting one from the heart. You know, how many cuts of Apocalypse has he done? It it, it, it does not end with, with Francis. So if you're the money, that's going to be a headache. But if you're the artist, it's going to be a playground. The person who it reminds me of, and it's someone who you bring up in the book a few times and who yeah, you know, just turns up in the book as as a character. Uh, it reminds me of Orson Welles in his later years, but mm, this is sort yeah. of almost like Orson Welles at the beginning. Of, you know, Francis Ford Coppola is almost like that from the very get go. Yeah, I can I can see what you're saying. I can see what you're saying. Yeah, that's a great comparison. I didn't really explore that. I didn't really explore that so deeply. Of course, the difference is Francis is trying to create in zoetrope a whole world, a whole community. He's not just thinking of himself as an artist the way that uh, Orson is. I don't put any moral judgment on that. That's who Orson was. He was an artist exclusively. Francis was an artist and he was also a visionary and a world a world builder, all, all of these things. And also he wanted to re-revolutionize uh, Hollywood. Orson had to run away totally and never come back. But Francis was always doing this, this back and forth dance um with with hollywood yeah i i think 
with Orson Welles, you can you can look at him either as an unsuccessful Hollywood director or a very successful European director. It depends, you know, it, it depends where you want to where you want to sit. Uh, you know, if you base your focus entirely on Hollywood, then he wasn't very successful. If you base it on a more worldwide viewpoint, then the trial is great, Othello is great. Right. And you have to ask yourself, what is success? You know, is it box office? Then Orson Welles was not successful. Is it is it is it the making of art? Then Orson Welles was successful. Um, so this is one of the things that is so exciting about Hollywood is that there are all these different definitions of what makes someone a success. Do you have to be a success in your time? It's true of all art making, but Hollywood, the financial component is so important that it makes this even an even more complicated question. Yeah, I was just reading a book today that said Paul McCartney's Mull of Kintyre was the most successful um, thing a Beatle had ever done, including when they were in the Beatles. Oh, my God. But nobody would ever say Mull of Kintyre is better than any of the Beatles singles. Right. There, or, there you go. There you, you know? go. Yeah. There you go. So so let's let's go through Coppola's career as you know we we get Dementia Thirteen, which is this sort of horror, this black you know it's it's basically cobbled together through one of Coleman's I you know typical ideas. We've got the money to make one movie, why not make two? And then you get um and then you get Coppola sort of becoming much more taking on a film which is much more himself if you like it's much it's coming just go through those first few films before we before we get anywhere and, and even a hollywood film in the middle of that is in yes well he took i mean dementia 13 is a job it's his way in and um uh, uh, uh let's see finian's rainbow is a big studio job a musical fred astaire musical that's an unhappy experience and so francis decides well I, I can't live like this. I have to go make films my own way. And that was the rain people. And that was where he started working in a serious way with George Lucas. And they went out on the road across the country with a, a work in progress script. I shouldn't say that they're finished drafts, but Francis is open to amending these drafts along the way. And in the course of filming this movie, they decided, hey, wait a second, this is fun. What do we need a studio for? And that became the genesis for uh, American Zoetrope. And so from that point on, he, he's got this parallel career almost, but they're, they're completely mixed of him wanting to be a director, a producer, but also you know, an independent studio. That's right. And that's the that's the story I wanted to tell. The the dream of this, this studio and how a studio isn't just a studio. It is a small city. And it is a plan uh, for 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 being together. Francis, I believe, you know, it gets back to what is success. Francis, I believe, achieved it. It doesn't exist anymore. But how long does something have to exist before we can call it a success? Uh, is a second long enough? Um, does it have to? Is it a year? You know, the fact is, Francis got farther than anyone. And so I look at it as um a triumph. And to some extent, it has a renaissance later on with the films uh, coming from Sofia Coppola as well. Yeah, for sure. Those are zoetrope films. And Francis's um, upcoming movie, Megalopolis, which I just read is going to be distributed uh, soon. That's a zoetrope 
movie. It go, it goes on. Uh, it goes on. Zoetrope is something that um, uh, changes its form, and so sometimes it's big and sometimes it's small, but it, it's always there. And when it starts, uh, when it's on its sort of first, what would you say, manifestation? I guess. Um... It's really uh, George Lucas who is who he's producing THX one one three eight and he's he's using the short film George Lucas has made as uh, you know uh, and they've got all these scripts as well that are going around so there's there's lots of activity going around but he's there's this wonderful relationship between George Lucas and, and Coppola which I think you you uh, um, you know you get into the detail of and you get into the the nitty-gritty of it's it's a really interesting portrait in good in friendship and also a sort of sense of rivalry and betrayal at times well i wouldn't characterize it as betrayal or or, or rivalry but they had two different visions of the future of film you know one of those is based in revolutionizing how we think of as pre of pre-production and one of them is revolutionizing post-production um one emphasizes um uh, um the 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 script which is francis and rehearsal um and and lucas emphasizes the um, special effects we know which one has come to fruition so in that sense it's a sad story for me personally but they they uh it's it's a great argument. Mm. It's a great argument. I, I think the emphasis on post-production, the pressure on post-production now is backward. Movies should be, um, you know, movies should be written either in pre-production. Uh, as much the movie should be written up front as is possible. Obviously, you're going to discover things along the way. And Francis teaches that. But the stories I hear, my friends in post- it's like they're rewriting the whole movie or are mm. using score to make up for emotion that isn't there. This was none of this was Lucas's intention, obviously, but the emphasis on special effects, which has nothing to do with storytelling, um, has has taken us to to a dark side, I think. Yeah, it's almost like a bad musical where, you know, you just keep going to the song and it's you're not, uh -huh. it, you know, but the song isn't good enough. Uh, mm -hmm. you know it's not advancing the story it's not yeah, doing that's anything right. that, that that's right i mean the these are movies are about photographing emotion and cutting a scene to enhance emotion these things are achievable without special effects so i i don't know what special effects contribute beside an uh, a, a sensation of of momentary awe, but I can't say I've ever been moved by a special effect. I mean, maybe I have few and far between. Um, it's not to say that these guys aren't magicians. They are. Um, and they've helped to make the movie wonderful. But if the work hasn't been done before they're called in, it's all icing and no cake. There's, there felt when I was reading, and I and and uh, he and you know Coppola throughout this book, there are so many innovations, and there are so many things that today we take for granted, like pre-visualization, like yeah. you know the idea of using cameras to sh uh, sorry live TV units to show actors their performances, but th at the same time, I kept being nagged by this idea that 
it was almost like he was the wrong person to have these ideas because uh, the pre-visualization for him just gave him another way of having five more decisions that he couldn't make, you know, or well, 10 more that's decisions. A, that's a- that's a compelling argument. Um, that's a compelling argument and a very interesting idea. Yeah, Francis is a maximalist who has a million ideas a minute. And you could say that that works against him. It divides his focus. But you could also say that without that kind of maximalist brain, these ideas wouldn't come into fruition anyway. Mm. Um, you could say that it re- takes a chaotic brain, but one wonders, like you're saying, uh, uh, what the world would look like if Francis Francis's attention wasn't divided at that at that moment. One wonders what Hollywood would. Look like. I almost wondered as I was reading it, as I was reading the book, I was I was fighting with this idea that if he just said, you know what, screw the studio idea. It's not. It's it's taking up way too much of my energy, and I'm just gonna make my movies. I'm just gonna yeah. make films. I mean, a would he have even been able to? Would the studio have been able to? You know, would he have been able to work within the system? Or or b, you know, would he? You know, would he have made many more films and and you know been? You know, would we have more Francis Ford Coppola films? Yes, we would. If Francis hadn't gambled on the studio, and lost. We we would have, I think, better movies right. um, from Francis Ford Coppola. The, the middle part of his career in the 80s is really Francis trying to uh, stay afloat. And he's a journeyman director. I, uh, I don't think, I mean, I think that Outsiders is good and, the, and Rumblefish is good, um, very good, actually. But they're not distinguished movies. I don't think we could say that they could only be made by Francis Ford Coppola, but he he needed jobs. You mm. know, he needed jobs. What would the world have been like if Francis didn't need the job, if he had the freedom to make what he wanted to make? Well, it's hard to speculate because now that Francis does have the freedom and makes the films exactly the way he wants to make them, a lot of people don't like those movies either. <laughs> and, and and I'm one of them. So um, we don't know. Um, Francis is an interesting case because he doesn't thrive, I don't think, with too much freedom. He also doesn't thrive with too much restriction. And, uh, you know, if he had worked within a studio system, he might have, he might have, if if he had worked happily within a studio system, who knows? Who knows? But he was, he was, he was always, it was, it was either too much or, or, or not enough. Looking at those amazing films from the 60s and 70s, looking at The Godfather, The Conversation, Godfather Part Two, I love the way you describe him Almost the conversation almost seems like he's just sort of tossed it off in the, uh, you know, in, in his meantime. And, and yet is is one, you know, it's appearing on everybody's best films of the year list uh, alongside uh, Godfather Part Two. Uh, and then Apocalypse Now, as as, as difficult as the uh, production of that film is, it is one of the best films ever made, in my, in my view. And... And looking at those, it it it's it feels so frustrating to watch the to read about the behind the scenes, and feel how much he was being sabotaged and how much uh, people like Marlon Brando, you, you know, I mean, like he's 
demanding so much money. It's just like Brando, man, you've got the money. Yeah. You don't need yeah. it. You know, give him know. give him a week for free. You know, give him a week for free. I what know. else are you doing? What else do you need to do? A- actors have a tendency to uh, see themselves as the center of everything. So um, I don't think Brando was any different. But um, that's my view of Brando. Francis, uh, Francis was adamant uh, uh, that he had a great time working with Brando and um, uh, that this has all been overblown of of Marlon causing him difficulty. I, I don't think Francis, having gone through, having done the interviews and having gone through the records, um, I think Fra- Francis is remembering it slightly differently, but this is what, this is what makes this is what makes um, uh, book writing a challenge. <clears throat> uh, so yeah, I have the same view of Brando that that you have uh, definitely, definitely. So the Godfather comes comes along as you say as a sort of very atypical. I mean, he's hired as a director. He doesn't want to do it. It's very reluctant in terms. Of, I mean, he's in terms of the material. He doesn't feel that he's doing something. Uh, that is going to be like his personal film, and yet it becomes this huge success. Um, talk us through the, through how that how that takes place, in your opinion. Well, I mean, he put himself into it, and um, you know, The Godfather, the book is not uh, is is not what he filmed, um, and also he had Gordon Willis to give him restrictions that he. Um, so um, that was, uh, I think, a secret, a secret weapon. Definitely. You describe Gordon Willis as, as recalcitrant. I think is the yes. word you use. Well, Gordon Willis, yes, of course, famously, famously so. Uh, the movie has been so analyzed and talked about. It's never any one thing, but what I've learned about the way Francis works makes me uh, more inclined to position Gordon Willis as a saving force of the Godfather um, and uh, someone who gave Francis real discipline. And I think the movie has a discipline that you don't see in Francis's other, other work. And that's from Gordon Willis. And uh, uh, so I, I, I think that's what I would add or what I would emphasize about the Godfather, the Godfather story, the Godfather's success. And then, of course, he has a conversation which you, it's really compelling your argument that this is really an autobiographical uh, film, that this is about the boy who who thought he couldn't walk, the boy who felt he was ugly, who who didn't feel loved, who, who couldn't have relationships except through a sort of voyeuristic vicarious you know film director style and that's that that just feels really uh, that that feels like a really interesting take on the film right i mean when you this goes back to why i wrote the book when you place godfather at the center of francis then you and which is all about family then you miss what the conversation is about um you but in fact, the conversation, which was Francis's dream project long before the Godfather, Godfather was never a dream project. So when you come to that fact, you have to look at Francis's emotional base not being family, but being loneliness. 
And 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 family was the antidote to to that. Um, so there's a level deeper than family, is is what I'm saying. And and you get that in the conversation. Couple of uh, mentions uh, early on. Uh, later on in the book, he mentions that, you know, or, or maybe you comment on it, that he's not very good with women. You know, his women don't don't turn out very well mm-hmm. in, you know, uh, you know Kay's mm-hmm. character is wonderful, but that's partly because of Diane Keaton much more than... I was thinking about it in terms of that whole roster of, of 1970s directors, you know, Scorsese, Lucas, Arriver uninterested in women or they're princess layers or they're civil shepherds or they're mm-hmm. they're unapproachable and even you know going going forward to apocalypse now um you know he's you know kurtz is running away from his wife and uh mm-hmm. you know there's a what a great point yeah and and also on that that set that making of and i think this is something that, that is very brave about the book and what i want to ask you a bit bit deeper about this as well is you don't shy away from the fact that Coppola's marriage is going through tremendous strain during this and Coppola himself is behaving in a way which has sort of previously been a little bit let's say passed over or you know boys will be boys or what do you expect it was the 70s and you actually go into the mistreatment of Eleanor Coppola the infidelities uh in in a way that isn't sort of salubrious or exploitative but at the same time is like no you know this is these are human beings who are doing bad things to each other as well yeah yeah I I I I wouldn't say I mean Francis was unfaithful um and um it is relevant to my story because he's going to make a movie called One from the Heart, which is about a couple in a long relationship breaking apart and coming back together. And because Francis looks at himself, like I said, it's a spiritual adventure. Francis looks at himself when he makes a movie. It's, um, I think, essential to to look at the marriage uh, as you approach One from the Heart. And uh, so that was a story that I'm that I was working on all the way, all the way through the book, and hopefully pays off in the end. But yeah, these this generation, this generation is young boys. Uh, the f- figures that you mentioned, they don't deal with women. I would I would say that Bogdanovich does. I do think JC is uh, even though a girl, she's um, dimensional and. Peter grew up and made, you know, movies about with other women, real women. But, you know, Lucas didn't. Francis, uh, I know some people go for Peggy Sue got married. I don't really. Scorsese, obviously. Uh, De Palma. Um, and and there's nothing wrong with not addressing women in your movie. Um, there is no mandate that says, Movies have to be about women. They don't. They're, that's not what drives art, is this what the society wants. That's called pandering. So I don't make any judgment around this. I only note as a historian that our our spiritual god our spiritual godfathers, this generation, never seem to have grown up. And I have to believe as someone who believes in Hollywood's power to make our lives better, 
that that has had a um uh not a, a not a nurturing influence on the culture um especially when you contrast it with the way hollywood used to be which was all about um love stories all about love stories um and romance these guys aren't um and that's okay uh for them i wish i don't know how okay it is for me but it's their prerogative as artists yeah yeah i mean it, it speaks of something that, to the 70s to that moment to masculinity at a certain point but as you say any one filmmaker or any one film doesn't have to necessarily go around ticking boxes in order right. to be and i think it's kind of fascinating for what it leaves out anyway i mean it is fascinating to see you know all these men who go to war in Vietnam, it is a largely masculine experience. It's difficult oh, to, sure. to think about. I mean, that's sure. one of the deprivations. Right. Now, there are also other filmmakers of the era who gave us terrific women. Polanski, uh, Mazursky, Woody Allen, they're the, uh, Cassavetes. Yeah, I was going to say Cassavetes. That was on yeah. the... Yeah, these, these, filmmakers, these filmmakers are there. Um, I'm just, I'm thinking of Wanda, which was directed by Barbara Loden. Exactly, as a, yeah. a, a really standout example of a. I suppose Scorsese as well, with Alice doesn't live here anymore, is is a, a yeah, really I, strong contender at the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, you could you could say that. You could say that. Yeah, yeah. And, and Boxcar Bertha, as I forgot, Boxcar Bertha. Well, of course, right know, at the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would skip over that one, but uh, <laughs> Alice, uh, Alice. Alice, yeah, yeah, hmm. but it's it's um, it is a great question. Have we been influenced by boys? Have these men grown up? You know, um, um, and have we, have we? Look at the movies that are out now. Look at the movies that are out now. You know, hmm. what is what is Oppenheimer? uh but a boys a, a boys movie i think a lot of these movies are not for adults and i'm i implicate the women in that too barbie so i i think um it it really goes both ways who's the audience it tends to be young people um we can we can sway young people more than we can adults so they become the audience it's a big question I'm not sure if it was Robert Altman or, or Paul Schrader who said, Robert Altman, is, of course, is also a great director of women, who said, uh, did we have better film? Do we have, did we have better films back in the 70s? No, but we had better audiences. And it was that that made the, you know, made the difference that the, the better films got the bigger audiences. Nowadays, we have great films, but they don't necessarily translate into a mass audience. They're, they're, they're there if you want to find them, but they won't necessarily be the ones at the top of the box office. Well, I take an even more cynical view. I think they did have better films. <laughs> they did have better films. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> unnecessarily self-deprecating on the part of a 70s director, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> so we get to One from the Heart, and One from the Heart, as you say, is this sort of big romance, and it's it's an opportunity for, you know, it's almost like the apothe apotheosis of the Zotrope experiment, you know? Mm -hmm. He's got the mm -hmm. studio, he's got everything, mm -hmm. he's got all this power, and, it, and at that point, it just starts to crumble underneath him with this, mm -hmm. you know, 
I mean, you, you, it feels like that's why the novelistic power of those last chapters where you feel the ground underneath his feet, you know, he needs 5 million to stay open yeah. for the week. He yeah. needs to, yeah. uh, and then the sort of uh, self-destructiveness almost of having those huge parties when he can't pay the wages, you know, man, that's not a good image. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, what makes it a great story? it's <laughs> a great story you know no one ever thinks they're doing the wrong the wrong thing uh you know when they're gambling mm. um they gamble for a reason so those parties were part of francis's gamble um mm. borrowing the money is part of francis's gamble so it it's my job to sit with him and say okay well that doesn't look like a wise bet to me i wouldn't make that bet why did Francis make that bet? And hopefully get the audience, the reader, to see why, from a certain level, those parties might not be as crazy as they appear. Uh, I certainly wouldn't throw those parties. You certainly wouldn't throw those parties. But we're not Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> I just get the feeling at a certain point he just liked throwing parties. I don't think there was well, that he much, did. You know, he did like throwing parties. He he did. I mean. That's part of the community building that um, is so important to him. So for this book, you've you've obviously done loads and loads of research in the archives. You've interviewed a lot of people, and you've sat down with Francis Ford Coppola over a over a period. I'm guessing by the by the uh, you know what was the what what sort of feel did he have for the book? I, I noticed in the acknowledgments you uh, thanked um, our mutual friend Janine Basinger for the oh, uh, of course yeah. Of for the course. introduction. I don't write a book. You know, we all write books alone, but um, there are always people looking over our shoulder. Always a couple of people, you know, at least for me. And number one is Janine, for sure. Hmm. Um, she's the greatest historian of film there ever was. Yeah. I've got I've got to get her back on the podcast because the episode she did for me was like one of my most oh. popular episodes and one of the funniest. I always say if someone could get Janine on a podcast every episode, it would be the greatest film podcast ever. Yeah. So Francis and I, we had uh, what I think of as a very healthy, um, intense working relationship that was not always comfortable for me and not always comfortable for him but I, if i could speak for him but i think that that's part of what made it healthy you sit there with a subject that you're writing about so intimately and your subject is naked and i as the writer showing my work to francis am also naked in another way and two people sitting naked across from each other are not going to be so comfortable with what the other person sees. Um, and <laughs> wait a second, I've just got a visual picture. I'll, uh, okay. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and, and you have to be honest and that's, that's not easy for either side. Now you also have to be kind if you're mm. going to, make your way through it and um we made it and i know there are things in the book that francis disagrees with um 
but to his great credit, he allowed it to be my book and it was better for his collaboration because I changed my point of view on some things with his help. Some things I didn't, but some things I did. What was the biggest disagreement you had? Um, a lot of it was about the family. Mm. Um, I think Francis would have liked me to distribute more credit to his collaborators, which is a generous impulse. But I felt that I had done that sufficient to what was required to the story. You know, you have different, we have different goals as as subject and author. He He would have liked more details about certain things. I didn't feel they were necessary to the story. You know, these are all things that you have that 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 there are judgment calls around. So no one thing in in particular. Um, um, some things uh, I, he told me that I had got wrong in my reporting, and he proved to me that I in fact had. So I was glad to change those. Um, you know, history is imperfect. <clears throat> It's imperfect. And um, so is Francis's memory. So how do you emerge from this intact? You you do your best. And uh, I know Francis is on some level very proud of it because he bought 100 copies of the book, I was told from my publisher. So oh, wow. I do feel it's a happy ending. Oh, that's a, that's a, that that's a real sort of um, yeah yeah that's a a, a stamp yeah. of approval I think a stamp of approval. Um, but what what does it mean to a subject if they love the book? I mean, think about if it was you, mm. would you love a book that showed you warts and all? Would you know? Uh, do you want that book? Francis does mm. incredibly to his unbelievable credit. But I don't think it's anything that he's gonna love. Mm, uh, mm. I think it's something that he's going to understand. I, I think from I think I mean just from my perspective, if you wrote a book about me like this, <laughs> just yeah. imagine that for a second. I would yeah. love, I would love the fact that somebody had taken the time to write something that was just so well conceived and well written. You know what I mean? That, I mean, I I read a lot of film books, and and anybody who comes on this podcast, they're always brilliant. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna <laughs> upset anybody, obviously. But there's there is there is sometimes they're brilliant because of the information you get. Sometimes they're brilliant because of I didn't know this, or this was an unexplored area of film, or this is a new perspective. They're not always brilliant because of the writing. You know, they're not always brilliant. The the level of the writing sometimes is just not even relevant. It's just like, no, it, it yeah. does it, it conveys what it needs to convey. But the writing is so good and the Thank organization you, of the you know, the story is so compellingly told. Thank you, John. That I, I can I think I honestly think you could read this and be the subject and just edge almost disassociate <laughs> yourself. Yeah, exactly. As a book. Oh. You know, well, that's great praise. I think. Thank you so much. I think it's easier said than done. I think, I, 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 I think, um, but I, I really appreciate that, and it's important to me to um, tell a good story. Mm. Uh, uh, um, why else pick a subject mm. um, when you're writing biographically? 
Um, when you're writing critically, it's not really your job to tell a story. It can be, but it's not necessarily your job. When you're telling biography, there has to be a reason you're telling it besides the work. Mm. It has to be because someone has lived a life. Otherwise, it's just, and then he directed this film, and, and then, then he, he directed, directed this. Yeah. Right, and he directed this. And that doesn't pay homage to the drama of being alive. And um, I want to do that. It's almost as though, going back to the question I asked earlier on, it's almost as though if he hadn't done the zootrope and he had just gone, I'll just, I'll just concentrate on my own directing, he would not have made as good a subject for you in this book because that's well, that's right. That's his sort of that's his great Gatsby dream. That's his... that's exactly right. I thought about this as the great Gatsby. Yes, no, this is and and here is where I keep saying it. Francis has been misunderstood. It's not about Francis the director. It's about Francis the leader of American zoetrope. And so, a final sort of point then uh his new film megalopolis is gonna come out uh 2024 um has a distributor uh i think in the us already um so is that going to change the story is there going to be a a, a a new edition of the book in a couple of years, which will have an oh. epilogue <laughs> with like, this has changed the whole view of how Francis is seen now? It's very possible. It's very possible. We'll see. We will see. I haven't seen the movie, so I'm as excited as you are. That was obviously intended as my my other question was, uh, <laughs> have you seen any footage? What's Nothing. it like? Nothing. 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 I was there. Uh, for a few days when he was shooting, and I wrote about it in the book, mm -hmm. but I haven't seen anything. Right, right. And it, I mean, I don't think anything has come out about it. There was a, a recent report, uh, some bad press coming out, uh, but that just sounded like the sort of usual scuttlebutt that you get on any big project that's been going on for a long time. That's right. I mean, uh, Francis, the press does not understand francis or how he works you know and um that's you you when you write about francis you see that he's been on the bad side of the press from the very beginning because they don't they just don't they don't understand uh the process his process I, in a sense uh there was this whole generation in the 70s and early 80s that, that well the early 80s decided to bring down the, the 70s, if you like, uh, mm -hmm. you make this wonderful comparison that you say uh, Heaven's Gate was this huge, massive, you know, expensive movie. Actually, it cost the same as Moonraker. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, uh, we all remember Michael Cimino, but who directed Moonraker again? Right. Exact. John, perfect point. Perfect point. No, the, 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 public's view of Hollywood finance is so skewed by their own prejudice against Hollywood, their own envy, jealousy of Hollywood, and by the way the press writes about it. They don't know simple facts mm. like this. So um, part of my job is saying, hey, wait a second, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. That's rumor, that's gossip, that's hyperbole. Here's what this is really 
about. I remember in our last conversation, we, or no, maybe it was two conversations ago. This is our third conversation. So maybe it was, we were talking about Blonde. And I'm not sure if you'd seen it up to that point. I was curious if you'd ever got to see it because uh, I think you hadn't seen it. I haven't seen it. I've heard about it and what I heard and, and seen clips. And um, what I heard was offensive to me and I didn't see it. Right. Okay. Because I'm just interested as well that Hollywood does a very bad job of showing itself off to the world as well. That, well, uh, Hollywood uh, wants you to come see the movie. So if the way to get you to see the movie is to denigrate Hollywood, then they'll do it. Um, if the way to get you to see the movie is to denigrate communists, they'll do it. Uh, if the way to get you to see the movie is to denigrate men, they'll do it. Whatever it is, they're trying to appeal to the audience. It's a very expensive business in that way. So Hollywood lies about itself against itself to sell to sell a movie. That's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know you're doing a lot of reading for research right now, and you're mm -hmm. doing and you've been reading. Obviously, you've been researching a lot of stuff. Um, but have you read anything in the last uh, you know calendar year that you've uh, well, last 12 months, I should say. So if I say calendar year, it's like two weeks. Um, have you have you read anything that you'd like to recommend for our for our listeners? I'm just I wish I had a stack here to remind myself of what I read. New book, new film books mm -hmm. or any any film books, really. Oh, any film books? Well, Janine's film books, um, Janine Basinger's film books, um, Richard Schickel's books. Mm. Um, these are people who um really understand hollywood and um write about it accurately mm. and intelligently a lot of people write about hollywood they haven't done the research they take secondhand sources for granted um and they have an axe to grind people like janine and richard schickel um give you the real thing there are others obviously um um, but those are two, those are two of my favorites. Um, oh, a wonderful book, um, a memoir by uh, Irene Selznick called A Private View about what it was like growing up as the daughter of Louis B. Mayer, <clears throat> the wife of, and the wife of David Selznick. Um, that'll give you a view of what Hollywood really, really is. Um, and, um, it's beautifully written too. Mm. Uh, that's always a good thing. That's always a yeah, great sign, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, Sam, that's absolutely uh, brilliant to talk to you again. I love the John. I love the the book as as I as I think I made clear. Um, you know, the long goodbye, not the long goodbye, the big goodbye. The big goodbye, right? The, yeah, the big goodbye. We had you on for then we had you on for Hollywood and oral history. Now we've had you on for uh, Coppola. And it's it's just uh, I can't wait until you you release your next book. Have you have you got anything you're working on that you could Frank talk about? Capra? Oh wow, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Frank Capra. Yep. Oh yep. my word. Okay, that's going to be a good. It'll one. It'll be years. It'll be years. Right. I really got to take my time with this one. There is a lot to cover. Right. Right. Yeah. A biography. S some kind. It might be un an unconventional biography like this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's going to be soup to nuts like the Fosse biography was. 
I was going to use exactly the same phrase. Is it going to be yeah. soup to nuts? Is yeah, it going I don't to be... think so. I don't think so. Yeah. Brilliant. I'm really looking forward to it, Sam. And and yeah, well, hopefully we'll have you on for that, if not before. I would love it anytime. I'm so grateful for what you're doing. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Sam. Thanks, John. It's always a pleasure.